Okay, everybody. So we just wanted to give a, a little chance for some discussion, some follow-up, some continued, some extended thoughts from from Dan, if if um, if he's up for it, and if you're up for it. I would say, you know, for this for this part of the evening, you know, don't don't feel obliged to stay. If you do have to duck out, please do. But if you want to stay, I'd say, you know, we can we can um, we can make use of of Dan's presence here and, and his wisdom as, as long as we'd like. Thank so, you so much. Um, and you know, depending on how our guest is feeling, we, we could adjourn to Mulready's if, if necessary. Um, but um, I just want to, to, yeah, again, thank you, Dan, for your presence sure. here tonight. We won't do an official close after this, but, you know, Dan, you, uh, I know him primarily as a, as a Catholic. He's a, man of, he's a man of God. He's a man of the church. Dan is a Catholic. Dan is a Kansan. Uh, he loves Kansas. He has made it his home, and... Um, He's chosen it and found it beautiful. It's something that I learned from him. Well, I think it's something that I, I learned from your, from your father that, um, you know, Fort Scott isn't a glamorous place. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it has its beauty, far. but it's, it's, uh, it, takes, it takes love to, to discover that beauty at, at times. And um, that's a lesson that I, that I have had to learn again and again, but it's something that I, that I learned from, from Dan's family. And, and my first contact with Dan's family was Dan. So um, I'm very grateful for your time here, Dan, and for the, the wisdom that you've shared. I hope we can dive in a little bit more. But one more round of applause for Dan and, hey, and, his, okay. and his thoughts. Yeah, so I'm, I'm again, I, I prefer uh, to be more conversational about these sorts of things. Um, I... You know, and I, I really would be interested to hear any questions that you might have, either about the school. I didn't want to hit you over the head with like a sales pitch about the school or anything, so I just you know mentioned a few things. Um, I'm happy to talk more about it, or we can get you know deeper into the theological you know consequences of uh, the incarnation, um, or talk about education in general, whatever you want to talk about. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a big fan of what you're doing. Uh, I really agree with uh, what you first of all said about education, how the real life uh, hands-on experience, how you truly uh, get an education. And that's uh, been something in my life that's really uh, shown and I very love that. Um, and I'm also a big fan because I grew up on a farm and I know the importance of it and what it builds. So I just want to kind of like know, like, yeah, like, what is the... What do you feel like is the importance to like having these men like work on the, more, these boys like work on the farm? Like, just give me like some of your, I guess, characteristics that they would build, like being able to be there with those animals. Okay, I'm going to give a longer answer. If that's okay. Yeah. All right. So um, I was reading uh, a an article in Time magazine uh, several months ago and it was actually it was at the beginning of the year okay and it was talking about why uh, it was a, an edition that was devoted to hope and why we should be hopeful about the future <clears throat> and in uh, the, the contributors uh, in, in, in this uh, edition 
were folks like Bill Gates, Melinda Gates, Bono, um, and uh, who's the billionaire up in Nebraska? <laughs> Buffett. Warren Buffett. Thanks. So I, I went to Buffett's article. I wanted to see what Buffett, Buff, why Buffett had reason for hope for us. He said that um, he noted a couple of changes, a couple of shifts uh, over the last 100 to 150 years that were, gave him great hope about the future. He said that in 1810, what would you guess, what percentage of households in 1810 listed farming as their primary occupation in the U.S.? About 80. 80 percent. Very close. Okay. Today, fast forward to today, and, and by the way, what kind of farms were those? Those were family farms, right? Fast forward to today, what percentage would you, would you think we're looking at now? Huh? Two percent. Okay, so we've gone from 80 to two percent. Um, and what kind of farms are those today? Massive, industrial, commercial, mechanized, highly mechanized, right? Uh, use of huge equipment and machinery that does a lot of the work. You can get these things, these combines that are basically on autopilot. Uh, and are working through a GPS system. I mean, really, you can't. Um, the family farm is all but gone, although there has been a little bit of a resurgence there, I think. I think people are, you know, you see movies or shows like Food, Inc., and, uh, and, and, and things like that, and Joel Salatin, who's now quite a celebrity. Anybody know Joel Salatin? World's most famous chicken farmer? You guys got to check him out. He's awesome. Seriously, he's awesome. He gave, this is a chicken farmer who gave a talk at Google's like, executive, um, to, to Google's executive team. Uh, he's, he's brilliant. You need to check out Joel Salatin. Okay, so there, there is a little bit of a movement there, but um, in general, we're in a free fall when it comes to the family farm. Now, <clears throat> going back to 1810, what were boys doing? I'm thinking about just in terms of St. Martin's and what we're doing at St. Martin's. What were boys doing when they grew up? They were working, right? Who were they working with? Specifically, their dad, right? Their uncles, their brothers. And the gals had work to do as well, uh, right? It's a lot of work. <laughs> the gals were working. Every bit is hard, probably harder than the guys. But the guys were doing certain things, uh, and they were doing them together. And the boys were learning from their fathers and their grandfathers and men how to work. Um, Warren Buffett says that uh, this, this shift from 80% down to 2% is a great reason for hope for us. Because... All of those people who are working on farms are now able to work in other sectors. And that generates more wealth. 
and particularly when it comes to technology and medicine, they're able to make developments there which give us longer lives. So the result is that we have longer lives and we have more stuff. And that's the reason for hope for Warren Buffett. I think it's ironic that that shift that occurred, which he points to as being the reason for hope, I think is a reason for absolutely catastrophic decline in the culture um, around the world, uh, basically post-industrial revolution. Because um, boys no longer work with their fathers, they no longer work, period, right? We are lucky, actually, here. I mean, we're, we're in one of the last bastions uh, of, of sanity when it comes to young men um, and, and, and young women working and actually doing things and having responsibilities. I mean, Kansas has a, a modicum of sanity when it, comes, when it comes to this, and the Midwest does. But the East Coast, uh, the West Coast, and even here, I mean, generally uh, work is just no longer really a part of the picture, right? I think that is catastrophic because um, boys, they need the example of older men showing them how to work, um, and they need to be needed. And basically, when, 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 all, when your existence is coming home, uh, playing video games, um, you know, uh, distracting yourself with a, with a smartphone, etc., um, what use are you to your parents? What, what use are you? Um, we have a parent, uh, a father uh, of one of the boys at, at St. Martin's, and he said <clears throat> it struck him one day that his son, Mateo, they're from Denver, that his son, Mateo, there was, there was something that he couldn't give his son, which he, he recognized that his son desperately needed, and that was a feeling that his son was needed and was important and he had something to do and he had something to contribute, right? Uh, I thought that was an amazing insight. Um, with the way, you know, with, with the way things are today and with, with uh, men who are now, have gone away out of the home, who work in the factory or go to the office, um, the boys then go to uh, a school where they sit down. They don't do any physical work. Maybe there's PE or something like that, right? But that's kind of somewhat contrived. It's not real work that, that seriously matters, right? Um, and they're expected to sit still. They're expected to do a lot of abstract work, mental work, a lot of abstract mental work. And then when they don't thrive, 
when they get fidgety and antsy, um, what do we do? What's our solution? Pills. Yeah, pills. I mean, it's it's just it, it, it's a it boils down to a, a misunderstanding of human nature and what and what people need and what you know and how people are are, are going to thrive, and it's a it's a it's a poor view. It's a poor understanding of what true education is. Um, we think it's about Professor Gradgrind grinding, you know, this kind of transfer of knowledge. We think it's about standardization. Um, tests, etc. Um, and it's really about the development of the entire person. And work plays a, a super important part of that. Um, I wanted to read, I had this great quote from Pope Benedict XVI that I wanted to read um, along those lines. And I think there's some, some good jumping off points from this quote. It's a little long, but <clears throat> I think it's worth it's worth uh, bearing down on and, and, and really, really hearing. So Benedict is talking about the original St. Benedict and the school of monasticism. And does anybody know the, the uh, motto of uh, the Benedictines? Ora et labora, which means prayer, prayer and work, prayer and labor. Okay, so here's, here's what uh, Benedict XVI says about Benedict, St. Benedict. Thus far in our consideration of the school of God's service, as Benedict describes monasticism, we have examined only its orientation towards the word, towards uh, the aura, okay, towards prayer. Indeed, this is the starting point that sets the direction for the entire monastic life. But our consideration would remain incomplete if we did not also at least briefly glance at the second component of monasticism indicated by labora, work. In the Greek world, manual labor was considered something for slaves. Only the wise man, the one who is truly free, devotes himself to the things of the spirit. He views manual labor as somehow beneath him, and leaves it to people who are not suited to this higher existence in the world of the spirit. The Jewish tradition was quite different. All the great rabbis practiced at the same time some form of handcraft. Paul, who as a rabbi and then as a preacher of the gospel to the Gentile world, was also a tent maker and earned his living with the work of his own hands. He is no exception here, but stands with the common tradition of the rabbinate. Monasticism took up this tradition. Manual work is a constitutive element of Christian monasticism. In his rule, St. Benedict does not speak specifically, uh, I can't read, what is that? Oh, he does not speak, speak specifically about schools. Although in practice he presupposes teaching and learning something, I have a weird printout here. However, in one chapter of his rule, he does spe speak uh, specifically about work, and so does Augustine, who dedicated a book of his own to monastic work. Christians, who thus continued in the tradition previously established by Judaism, 
must have felt further vindicated by Jesus' saying in St. John's Gospel in defense of his activity, activity on the Sabbath, quote, my father is working still and I am working, end quote. The Greco-Roman world did not have, this is, I think we're, this is the money part. The Greco-Roman world did not have a creator God. According to its vision, the highest divinity could not, as it were, dirty his hands in the business of creating matter. The making of the world was the work of the demiurge, a lower deity. The Christian God is different. He, the one real and only God, is also the creator. God is working. He continues working in and on human history. And in Christ, he enters personally into the laborious work of history. Quote, my father is working still and I am working. End quote. God himself is the creator of the world and creation is not yet finished. Thus, human work was now seen as a special form of human resemblance to God. As a way in which man can and may share in God's activity as creator of the world. The Jews have an old tradition. Um, you know, the Jews don't have a, really a, a, a notion of retirement. That's just a foreign idea to them that you hit a magical age and suddenly you just kind of check out. They don't have, that's not part of Jewish community. When you are no longer able to work, it's time for you to die. I mean, that's kind of their way of looking at it. Uh, they, and they have this great tradition about David that um, well, and it goes, it goes, it goes kind of hand in hand with, with what I just said, but they, they have this idea that so long as you're working and you're creating, you're engaged in a creative act, that creative act is so infused with life because it's so godlike that you can't die. And so they have this pious legend that the only way that David could, the, the only way that David died is because um, effectively the angel of death had to come down and distract David from his work for a short period of time. So then he wasn't engaged in creative, he wasn't engaged in some kind of creative act. He wasn't engaged in his work anymore. And then he was able to, you know, sneak him down into the underworld. Uh, that's pretty cool. So, that was a long answer, as I said. Yeah. Others? Yeah. Um, so, how did you go through the process of getting your school kind of like accredited? I don't know what word I'm looking for. <laughs> how, like, how was it able to be accepted? Yeah. yeah. Well, <clears throat> that's a good question. Um, we have some basic level of accreditation. We're able to offer um, a diploma, a high school diploma, and transcripts. We're not formally uh, accredited with the state of Kansas, though. Um, whatever that, and, and, and it's not even clear to me exactly 
what all that entails other than a ton of bureaucratic baggage that I don't really want. Yeah. So, so we're, you know, the basics, we're able to offer a diploma, transcripts. I don't foresee any issues with people being able, you know, our, our graduates being able to get into good schools. I went to a boarding school that was not accredited. I mean, it was very similar to, to, to the one that, that we've started here. And um, getting into a, you know, getting into good schools didn't, didn't prove to be an issue there. Yeah. Anyway, it was pretty simple, actually. Fill out some form. Basically, we're like some kind of glorified homeschool operation or something. Yeah. Something like that. It was simple. I mean, it was, it was one of the more painless parts of the process, believe it or not. Yeah, so it's high school. So this year, uh, we have 18 students. We have eight ninth graders and 10 tenth graders. Does that make sense? Okay, 18. And, so, and then we'll stair-step up from there. Um, so next year, we'll add a, another ninth grade class. Tenth graders will become 11th graders. Yeah. And, and, and we have 18 at capacity. We'll be 60. So I, I, I hope to have between 12 and 15 per class. I'd like to keep it to 12, but we'll have to see practically if we can if we can make that go. How do you similarly implement these ideals in like your daughters and your sons at home mm. as like in comparison with other schools? That's a good question. Well. Up until this year, we, we homeschooled our kids because we wanted them to, um, so, so we're out on a farm, you know, and, and they have daily uh, responsibilities on the farm, um, collecting eggs, you know, from the chickens, feeding the chickens, feeding the, the cats and the dogs, and, um, and, uh, and they help milk, actually. My kids are pretty small, so the oldest is 10, the youngest is 2. Um, but the seven, nine, and ten-year-old all help with milking, and um, that's the primary way is to give them just access to the great outdoors. The other thing we do is we um, we don't have a TV. You know, um, we had a TV when the kids were really little. I love watching sports, so I would have a TV in the house just so I can watch the Chiefs. You know, um, yeah, Patty Mahomes. Yeah, right on. Um, but it was clear that it was going to be a disaster in terms of the imagination of our kids and their de the development of the imagination of our kids, and that they would go, you know, it's like it's like moths to a to a, a street lamp. I mean, that TV as soon as it's turned on, they just go right to it, and they've done. I mean. They've done. They've shown that there's less brain activity while you're watching TV than while you're asleep. Did you know that? I mean, that's not a productive use of your time. When you're talking about when you're talking about the development of a young mind, you're basically just pithing them for a couple hours a day by letting them watch TV. You know. So. We do technological fasting in the house, you know, we, we um, not because t all technology is evil. You saw my phone, I mean, you know, I, I have to have a phone. I'm not suggesting that you 
you know, throw your phones away. But with with kids, I think you've got to be super, super careful about their access to screens. Not just because of moral concern that they're going to get into something, they're going to see something bad, although that is a real concern. I, I mean even more fundamentally that I think it's damaging, just damaging to their imagination. It's so passive. Um, they don't have to exercise their imagination when they watch TV. It's somebody else's imagination doing all the work for them on a screen. It's better to listen to the radio, you know, or, or read a book or draw or be outside. So. Those are a few things, yeah. Spiritual formation. So we, we try to embrace the Benedictine um, motto of ora et labora. And if you've ever been to a Benedictine monastery, you'll see that um, from the time they wake up to just before they go to bed, their day is punctuated um, at regular intervals by prayer. Um, by chanting the psalms and, and by, um, by the, uh, the divine offices, right? That's what we do. So we, we start the day with morning prayer. It's called lauds. We speak it in English. Um, we, before each meal, we, have, uh, we say the Angelus. Um, after lunch, we have a rosary. In the afternoon now, we have a daily mass. So the, the boys go to mass every day except for Saturday. Um, and then we conclude the evening with Compline, which is sung, it's chanted in Latin. Um, and then, you know, they're, they, we have an awesome chaplain um, who is a great old... He actually was an Episcopalian priest, and he was married, and is married. Um, and was what's it, what was it called? You know, when when JP two kind of invited the the Episcopalians and the Anglican priests who were who were married and gave them the opportunity to become Catholic priests. There was some kind of name for that. The ordinariate. The ordinariate. Thanks. Yeah. So through that offer, he came. He came. Um, he became a, a Catholic priest probably uh, 30 years ago. Uh, he's retired from the diocese of Wichita, but he's also a clinical uh, psychologist. Um, has a number of, of um, degrees, um, masters uh, degrees, and a couple of things, and is just a brilliant guy. He also rides a Harley. I mean, he's just a. He's a. He's, he's, uh, he, he's a really neat guy. Um, and he's, he's a really important part of the formation there. Um, but they have regular, um, they have a regular prayer schedule, right, that just, that is kind of woven into the fabric of the day. Um, the, the goal there is for them to, recognize and begin to understand that your prayer life is not some discrete part uh, of your life that you can you have in this kind of compartment that you attend to at certain times of the week on Sunday and a little bit before meals here 
and and you know maybe there's a, a rosary there. Um, you know we could have this nice set schedule, um, but if behind that isn't this kind of cultural education that's going on, where we kind of we make we 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 help them to see that. Um, the life of the spirit and and the and and the spiritual battle is something that permeates their entire life, right? Uh, it gives meaning to their entire life. Um, the life of grace, the supernatural life, um, is not just for a specific time and place. It's for their. I mean, it's it's everything. Yeah. So yeah, I very recently became a father. Hey, congratulations. And uh, the idea, like everything you're saying is like what I've been thinking about for the last nine months, just like, you know, I ideals to, um, you know, be kind of control and tolerate and everything. And, you know, this whole sound also, but the one part of that, uh, that I wasn't sold on that I'd love to hear your answer to, is, you know, is, is the separation of Yeah. So I would say, first of all, that it's not for everybody. I think there are certain families that have where, where, the, where the father, for example, maybe is working at home um, and is able to be a really serious uh, and constant presence for his son um, and or there is a larger community to which you're a part of uh, where the boys are able to be especially or are able to work like we were talking about just a moment ago, where they're able to work uh, with other men. You know, the, every, every, um, almost every culture has had certain rites of passage between boyhood and manhood. And those rites of pass passage have to be conferred uh, to a boy from a man. That's the way it has to happen. I mean, it's just, it's just a perennial truth. Um, the trouble is that because of the, <laughs> just because of the economic realities that, that you know, exist in the present-day workforce, um, most men have to leave the house for 40-plus hours a week. Leaving kind of the, re the rearing of the children, including the boys, uh, to, to mom, who may try to homeschool or maybe they're put into uh, you know, a good parochial school or, or, or some kind of school. Um, but then there are real challenges there. Um, and so I think what a lot of our parents have come up against is that uh, they've tried to a lot of our a lot of our parents have, have homeschooled not all of them but a lot of them and what they find in 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 in, in every case it's mom who homeschools 
not, it's not dad, it's mom who homeschools. And invariably, mom feels at a certain point, usually around the time that the boy hits puberty, that there need that he's starting to resist um, being under mom's thumb. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and that's natural. That's not a bad thing. I mean, that, that's kind of that's nature starting to tell you something. You know, and and so in, in that case. And in those cases, the father raises his hand and says, look, I can't give my son what he needs. I'm just not there enough. I wish I could, but I'm not. I've got to work. And, you know, spending, you know, half an hour with the kids, uh, you know, after dad comes home at night and is tired and, you know, wants to just... The last thing he wants to do is, you know, wrestle with the kids or, or whatever. You know, it, it, it's hard to do. It's just, it's, it's hard to do that. And so um, thinking about why you would then send your, send your boys away, I mean, I, I think that that, first of all, is not for everybody. It's always a super hard decision to make. The, parent, the parents who make those decisions are, are making them because they think it's in the best interest. It's been, it's, it's um, I already see it with, with these guys this year. Um, they can't wait to go home for Thanksgiving. And they're going to, they're going to have the time, they're, the quality, the, the, the you know, the quantity of time they're spending with their family has gone down significantly. In terms of quality, though, it's gone up. It, it will go up exponentially. And that's, that's a big deal. Yeah. On that. How do you balance like your work life with your family? Since you like running so much stuff, how do you balance? Well, how do I balance work and family? Mm -hmm. Well, you have to. I, I mean, I don't have like a really fun answer there. It's just you have to set a schedule. I mean, you know, at 6 p.m. it's time for dinner and you we have dinner my wife cooks every night and we sit down for dinner and that is a sacred time and we do not mess with that time so we sit down for dinner and then we clean up we say the rosary and then I read to the kids for half an hour and then it's bedtime you know um, that's as much as I'm able that's as much time as I'm able to, to spend uh, with the fam and then I try to keep uh, my weekends as free as I can um, to uh, you know to, to, to spend time with them so you just you have to you have to set a schedule and set boundaries um, and you know that's just no matter what job you have that's that's something that you have to do it's particularly true when you're starting your own business and you have your own you know concern um, I think men are pretty happy to get lost in their work, and uh, and that can often often be at the, at the to the detriment of their of their family. Yeah. Well, 
I, I don't know if I would, you know, that the, there, there, there's a way in, in which that is, is it, it, it is true to say that. Um, I, I, I guess I wasn't trying to make a really specific statement that would be judged to be heretical. I was, I was speaking a little bit loosely, but get, go ahead. Well, I was just wondering, what, what would uh, the take be on uh, Matthew 26, where Jesus says that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak? Yeah. Well, I mean, what's that? So, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Well, that's obviously true. Um, obviously, it's true. Um, what 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 do you think he's um, trying to say there? Yeah, you know, our human nature suffering from the, the scars of the fall. Um, there, some 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 of the ramifications of the fall are um, that that the flesh is weak and ha has been compromised and. Um, it's also the case that uh, the spirit can be weak too. Uh, you know, there are temptations that are more t temptations of the body and then there are temptations that are more temptations of, of the spirit. And um, the sins of the spirit are graver sins than the sins of the body. Pride, avarice, are graver sins. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I think your, your question's a good one. I don't mean to say that, um, I don't mean to say that, uh, the flesh doesn't have its weaknesses. It does. Just, I, I just, um, I think what we need to avoid is looking at matter, material things, and creation as being evil, inherently evil. That's right. Yeah, there's there's tension there, but yeah. Um. Oh, me? Oh, there were two people before me, but I wanted to like, add in one because you were asking. Um, oh. Oh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know, um, like, I get the historic aspect of, like, the men um, are the workers, the men are the ones who work on the farm, but the ones who work inside. And I get the historical aspect of that. Um, but I also know from like my own experience um, that as the youngest in my family, it fell to me um, to help my dad on the farm mm. um, and to help with working the cattle, help with putting up hay, help with mm -hmm. um, yeah, being outside in negative temperatures with knee-high mud. Yeah. Um, and I know that without those experiences, I would not be where I am today. Um, is, is there a future, um, I guess, in, in what you're doing for girls and for women? Yeah. So I have, uh, five kids, four, four girls, and, uh, we're very interested in starting a girl's school. Now, I know more. I just know more about a boys' school because I went to one, and I'm a boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait, really? 
But I absolutely, absolutely, and and the school will look very much like what we're doing. There's going to be work, you know. Um, there's going to be, uh, I think, uh, I think it'd be great to have some, you know, equestrianism happening. Um, but yeah, there's going to be. There, it's the same. It's the same kind of again. The same kind of incarnational approach where we're going to be getting our hands dirty, um, doing work, being in direct contact with real things. It doesn't change because you're a boy or a girl. No. So yes, I mean that's 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 on the that's squarely on the radar. And I think there's some promising. You know, we have some. It, it, you know, that's going to be five or six years down the road. I've, I've got to try to get this school uh, on stable footing before we would try something like that. It turns out to be a pretty big enterprise to start school. Good question. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, so I'm a secondary education major, um, and a lot of like what we do, like at least here, um, is learning how to integrate technology mm -hmm. in the classroom. So do you, or how do you integrate technology? Because what we've heard so far sounds very thorough and, like, out in the world. You mean not thorough, but thorough? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Walden? Yeah. Okay, so a couple of things to say there. One, it's a screen-free <coughs> campus. <clears throat> so we don't have computers there. We don't have smartphones. Um, we have one phone that the boys can call home on and, and, and their parents can call in too. Um, so, um, but what we're trying to do, one of our main missions is to restore the imagination. And we feel that's best done, again, by direct contact with reality, not mediated through a screen. And so we're having the boys do effectively what amounts to a technological fast while they're there. Um, the thing is, is that we, the use of technology is kind of in the air we breathe today. And I don't, I don't the, these boys aren't going to be hampered in the use of technology by having fasted. From, from the use of technology for a few years. Um, I can speak to that from firsthand experience. Um, and I think, more importantly, what it will help them with is to gain some perspective about the proper use of technology. You know, how, where does it fit into their life? Um, can they set limits and set boundaries with it? Um, and being able to step back for a period of time and realize that life does go on without your smartphone um, is a pretty helpful thing. So, does that answer your question? I mean, that, so that's our approach. You might not agree with it, but that's our approach. Yeah. So the, uh, the HOPE article and the intrigue. What's your reasoning for hope, or is there any? Ah, reasons for hope. Hmm. Well, I mean, as really, 
the ultimate reason for hope is that uh, the victory has already been won. I mean, Christ has, has conquered death. That's the reason for hope. I mean, it's, and that's never going to change. Uh, the world, what are the reasons for hope in the, in the world in terms of the city of man? You know, there's the city of God and the city of man, and the city of man has pretty much always been a disaster. And, and it pretty much always will be. So, I mean, our hope isn't in this world. You know? um, and that's, that's where Buffett's barking up the wrong tree. He's putting his ladder on the wrong wall because he's thinking that hope lies in, in some kind of you know, material um, good. It doesn't. And it's absurd, you know, I mean, it's just, it's been proven throughout the course of history that that just leads to <laughs> uh, basically genocide is what it leads to. Um, so, yeah, what reason do we have for hope? Uh, Christ has conquered death. And we have supernatural life at our fingertips and, and, and God wants to give it to us. That's, that's the reason for hope. Anything else? All right, you bet.